0: Well, take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're going to get back to our study this week, and we are um, making some headway here, and uh, we split this chapter up, and last week we looked at verses 1 through 7, and tonight we're going to look at mainly verses 10 through 20, I will explain verses 8 and 9 briefly as we begin, but Uh, We're going to really mainly focus on verses 10 through 20, which in my Bible has a little title over it called, The Folly of Riches. And we know another word for folly is what? Foolishness, right? The foolishness of riches. And the book of Ecclesiastes is in the genre of what we call wisdom literature, right? So what do we got? Wisdom literature. We've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, right? Uh, poetry would be more like Job and, and, and Psalms, and, uh, and, and wisdom literature is, is basically the stuff that Solomon wrote, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And so this is all about wisdom and folly, and, and so if you really want to make sure we're interpreting this book accurately, just consider it like the Proverbs. It's really contrasting how to live wisely with how to live foolishly, right? And uh, you're either a, a, a wise man or a fool. And uh, there's a wise way to live, and there's a foolish way to live. And uh, that's really the whole point of this book, is, is how to live wisely. And so he's going to talk about tonight the foolishness of riches. Now, as I was reading through this passage and, and just preparing my heart to begin studying it, what came to my mind was the lottery system. I really, I've never played the lottery, never bought a lottery ticket, but Uh, I really didn't know a whole lot about the lottery, so I thought I just, I'm going to research a little bit about the lottery um, here in, in the United States. Every week in our country, millions, literally millions of people buy lottery tickets hoping to win it big. It's estimated that almost half the people in America play the lottery, 46%, and they spend more than $58 billion every year buying lottery tickets. That's a lot of money. And as an entertainment goes, the lottery's pretty cheap, right? You spend a lot more on a movie, right? Or going bowling or whatever. But as an investment, it stinks. Uh, states typically withhold about 40% of the ticket money from the prize pool for overhead costs and education funds. Um, that's a far worse return than casino gambling or horse race betting which is why the lottery is sometimes called a tax on stupid people. I had not heard that, but I thought, wow, that rings true. It's a tax on stupid people, right? Who wants to pay extra tax? Oh, I do. Here you go, (laughs) right? It's stupid. What are you doing? And uh, again, I thought how ironic a tax on stupid people. We're talking about the folly, right, the foolishness, the stupidity of pursuing riches, um, based on the statistics, you say, how stupid is it, right? Attacks on a stupid on stupid people. How stupid is it? Well, based on the statistics, it's more likely to die from a bee sting, be struck by lightning, be attacked by a shark, or have conjoined twins than to win the lottery. That's just a, from a statistics perspective. You're more likely that one of those things is going to happen than you ever win the lottery. Um, you're 12 times more likely to die in a car accident driving to the store to buy a lottery ticket than you are to win a gigantic jackpot. You do the math, right? So coupled with the fact that it's highly unlikely that a person will ever win the lottery is the fact that it is highly likely, if they do win the lottery, that it will end up destroying their lives. In other words, even if best case scenario you're that one in 220 127 millionth right person that that wins the lottery woohoo i won the lottery well guess what your problems aren't over they just began and and it's it's likely going to hurt you more than it's going to help you um The reason why I say that is because if you go online and just type in lottery, there's no shortage of tragic stories of lottery winners whose lives got worse, not better, when they won the lottery. They call it the lottery curse. And uh, I picked one out of all the, the list of ones I read through, and this will hit close to home because this is a guy named Billy Bob Harrell, who at age 48 was just about broke when he played the Texas Lotto, June 1997. I don't know if any of you remember that. Um, I hadn't arrived here in Texas yet, so uh, that was one year prior here, June 1997. But on the verge of bankruptcy, six ping pong balls landed the right way, and he was a $31 million winner, $31 million dollars. He quit his job at Home Depot, and with his first $1.2 million check, took his family to Hawaii, gave thousands of dollars to his church, lavished cars and houses on, on friends and on family. He even bought 480 turkeys for the poor. And then suddenly, he says that strangers were calling, demanding donations. He had to change his phone number several times. The strain of it all damaged his marriage, and less than a year after winning the lottery, Harold got divorced from his wife. And through reckless spending and and foolish lending, he wound up with much less money than he had won, but that didn't seem to matter to him. All he wanted was his family back. And one night in 1999, just two years after winning 31 million dollars, he had plans to meet his ex-wife for dinner when his oldest son found him dead of a self-inflicted shotgun wound. And before committing suicide, he had told a friend, quote, winning the lottery was the worst thing that ever happened to me, end quote. Pretty much sums it up, all the stories that we could read about bad things that happened to people that won the lottery. And so, in light of these stories, stories like this one, and uh, not to mention the statistics, right? You might wonder why would anyone in their right mind, key phrase, right? Why would anybody in their right mind play the lottery? The point is, you're not in your right mind if you are, but who in their right mind would play the lottery? And I think it's because the majority of people, including Christians, including some Christians, live under the delusion that money is able to fix everything in our lives. I mean, the prevailing motivation for for many people is if I could just win the lottery, then all my problems in life will be solved. I mean, Kel and I have even joked about that, right, when we got some bills that we don't know how we're going to pay, and man, we're like, oh man, we just need to win the lottery, right? You, there's, it's a joke in our society, just let's just win the lottery, and all of our problems will be solved. We'll have all the money we need, we'll never have any problems, we'll, we'll never want for anything. But all you have to do is ask any wealthy person, and they'll tell you that rather than solving all their problems, their wealth has created problems that they never had before, Furthermore, they would probably tell you the more money you have, the more you want. The more money you have, the more people will want to take it from you. The more money you have, the more you have to worry about. The more money you have, the more you have to lose. And the more money you have, the more you'll leave behind. And that's exactly what the richest man who ever lived said. I'm not talking about Carlos Slim right? I don't know if you know him. I didn't even never heard of the guy, but he's apparently more wealthy now than Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, right? Those guys are, that's nothing. Those guys, you know, that's pocket change. This guy's like upwards in the, I don't know, 70 thousands or something like that. Crazy. So, excuse me, 70 billion uh, dollars. But we're not talking about these guys. We're talking about who? King Solomon. And, uh, turn back in your bibles to first kings chapter 10 and i want to show you just just give you a a peek into the wealth of solomon this is in the context first kings chapter 10 when the queen of sheba had heard about the fame of solomon concerning his wisdom and concerning his wealth and she didn't believe it She's like, there's no way there can be any man that wise and that wealthy. And so she came to visit him and to see for herself. And it says, when the queen of Sheba, this is verse 4, perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. I mean, she, had, she, she was speechless, this was amazing. She had never seen anything like it. And then she said to the king, It was true, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told of me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men, how blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and bear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. And then check this out. As if he didn't have enough stuff, she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the Queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. Also the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought, brought in from Ophir a very great number of almug trees and precious stones. The king made of the almug trees support for the house of the Lord, and for the king's house also lyres and harps for the singers. Such almug trees have not come in again, nor have they been seen to this day. King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all her desire, which she requested, besides what she gave according to his royal bounty. Then she turned and went to her own land together with her servants." And then it goes on to explain or describe Solomon's splendor and wealth. Verse 14, Now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold using three miners of gold in each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon." Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory, overlaid it with refined gold. There were six steps to the throne and a round top to the throne at its rear and arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps on the one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None was of silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. <laughs> that's like silver. Huh? that's just silver. You know? <laughs> Come on, we got, we got better stuff than that around here. For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. I mean, this guy was like uh, the most interesting man in the world, right? Remember I said that? He's like the Dos Equis guy, right? This guy has got all this stuff going on. You got, you got monkeys and peacocks, exotic birds, And animals coming in. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. They brought every man his gift articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. In other words, people just would heap stuff on him, even though he already had plenty. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the low land. Also Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt in Kew, and the king's merchants procured them from Kew for a price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver. That's an expensive chariot and horse for 150, and by the same means they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Arameans. Based on today's numbers, it's estimated that Solomon's wealth totaled upwards to $100 billion. So, see ya, Carlos Slim, right? Solomon was the richest man who ever lived. And I would venture to say, who will ever live? So Jesus better come back pretty quick because guys are getting close, right? Um, but the point is, uh, for, for the reason why I read all that is just to make this point that if money could make anyone happy, it would be who? Solomon. He had the most money that anyone has ever had. So if there was a guy who was going to be happy and satisfied with money, right, um, it's going to be Solomon. He literally lacked for nothing. He had everything he could possibly want or imagine. And yet in his personal journey journals, in which he chronicled his search for satisfaction in life, he listed money as one of the things that will never fully satisfy a person or keep them happy in life. You remember back in chapter 2, uh, verse 4, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, I made gardens and parks for myself, I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees, I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees, I bought male and female slaves and I had home-born slaves, also I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem, also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces, I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines, then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom has also stood by me, and all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. From my heart was pleased. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor. This was my reward for all my labor. Thus, I considered all my activities, which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was what vanity, and striving after the wind, chasing the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So, the point is this, okay, (laughs) wise up. If you don't have as much money as Solomon, unless you have more money than Solomon, that's the only chance you might have that money might satisfy you, right? Unless you have more money than Solomon, you got no chance, right? So, unless you start pulling 101 billion, 105 billion, then just own up to the fact it ain't going to satisfy you. Because if it didn't satisfy Solomon, why would, it, why would it satisfy you? Especially when you got a lot less than $100 billion, right? You're trying to make it through the month, right? And, uh, and he had it all. So here in, in chapter 5, Solomon returns to the subject of money and possessions. And he provides us some very insightful observations and conclusions that he made that are very relevant in the money-mad world in which we live. And I think this is so um, relevant because money uh, is one of the main things, if not the main thing, that people seek to find purpose and meaning and satisfaction and happiness in life rather than in God, especially here in affluent America, That, that money has become a god. It's become an idol. It's, a, it's been a, a God replacement, if you will. And so um, I think that's one of the reasons why Solomon repeats this, because he knows we're thick-headed, and that especially those of us who live in the Western world who have, uh, all of us, at least a mild case, case of what someone called affluenza, <laughs> affluence, right? And we all want a little taste of that, we want a little piece of that, of, of that Affluence. And so he wants to just um, expose that. And so what he does here in this, in this chapter, the rest of this chapter, is he, he, he really exposes four myths about money. Four myths about money that if we believe, we will be robbed of what really matters in life. If we believe these four myths, it will rob us of what really matters in life, and what we should really be pursuing or who we should really be pursuing. Now, again, Solomon was not condemning money in and of itself, okay? he What, what he was con- uh, condemning was the love of money. He says in verse 10, he who loves money. He doesn't say money, he says he who loves money. So this is the lust for money, this is the... Um, the, the, the whole idea here is we're made for more, right? That's the title of our series, Made for More. And can I just say this? It's not money. <laughs> that's not what we're made for more. It's not, we're not made for more money. We're made for more than money. We're made for God. And that's the point. And so what are these four myths? I'm just going to tell you up front here, and then we'll go through them. Number one, this is, this is myth number one, money makes you happy that's myth number one. Myth number two, money solves all your problems. Myth number three, money brings peace of mind. And number four, myth number four, money provides lasting security. Don't worry if you didn't get all those. We'll go back over them here as we go through this text. But before we look at these four myths about money, let's look at verses eight and nine, uh, which are sandwiched between what we looked at last week, verses one through seven, and what we're going to look at tonight. And these Two verses, verses 8 and 9, are two of the most obscure verses in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's it's difficult to determine the original meaning in the Hebrew, and they could be taken either positively or negatively. So let's read them, and you, you figure out, should we take these things positively or negatively? He says, if you see... Oppression of the poor, and denial of justice and righteousness in the province. Do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Now, how that could be taken positively is that Solomon, again, is just returning to the subject of oppression of the poor. And the perversion of justice, he's talked about that in chapter 3 and he, and, and then also at the beginning of chapter 4, uh, how that was very disillusioning for him. It would have been better, in light of the injustices of the world, it would be better if he hadn't even, hadn't even been born, right? So he's returning to that whole idea of oppression of the poor, perversion of justice, and it may be that he, again, just wanted to make sure we didn't let that get us down or cause us to, to, to despair that we can be assured that there's a system of checks and balances, right, in place uh, to help minimize the injustices of society, right? We have different branches of government, right? There are checks and balances. They hold one another accountable. That's what he's saying. Hey, don't worry about it. Um, Don't be shocked. One official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. Um, And everyone, even the highest official, the king, is dependent on the produce of the field and on the providence of God. Everyone will be held accountable by God someday, and he will see to it that all accounts are, are, are righted, all, all wrongs are righted. We, we know that from chapter 3, verse 17. So he could be just kind of repeating that whole idea. Or, from a, that would be a positive perspective. From a negative perspective, Solomon may have been referring to those who suffer as a result of sinful structures of society where the rich people tend to be in charge and oppress the less fortunate people by establishing policies that benefit the rich rather than the poor. In other words, oftentimes we see in societies the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, right? And there's, there's injustices and there's oppression, and again, this may have been a reference to Solomon's rule when it says, after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Rather than demanding all the land for himself, he, he, he gave the people the opportunity to, to till the land. Um, and so basically here's Solomon endeavoring to use his wealth and his power as king compassionately rather than oppressively. So that could be what he's talking about there. But um, again, I didn't want to take a whole lot of time trying to figure that out because we really want to get to verses 10 through 20. And so let's look at now these, these four myths, these four myths about money. Number one, money makes you happy. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Underline that. That's the whole point of this text. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. We could just close in prayer right there. That's his whole point that he's trying to make here in these 10 verses. Nor he who loves abundance with its income, this too is vanity. So money will not satisfy. We, we have an expression, we hear it all the time. Money can't buy what? Happiness or satisfaction. That is a true Statement: Money cannot buy satisfaction. It cannot buy happiness. And those who greedily strive for more and more money will find themselves less and less satisfied. And they'll never be able to get enough to make them content. You've all heard of John D. Rockefeller. He's often used uh, as an example when it comes to money. Um, But uh, he was one of the richest men who ever lived. At the age of 53, he was the world's only billionaire the only billionaire in the world, age 53, he was earning about a million dollars a week. I mean, that's just like, are you kidding me? What in the world? And someone asked him how much money was enough? And he famously replied, just a little bit more. Seriously? You need a little bit more than a million dollars a week? But that's... that's that's it. You're never. It's never enough. And the irony of it is, the more you get, the more dissatisfied and disillusioned you become, and you also increase the risk of your life being destroyed. Turn over to First Timothy, chapter six, and uh, here very clearly Paul lays out for Timothy in the church in in, in, uh, in Ephesus uh, this same principle about wanting to get rich, being greedy, and being a lover of money. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. He says, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. In other words, if we have the basic necessities of life, right? With these well we shall be content. We, there needs to be um, some more Christians, Christian Baloos. Remember Baloo, the, the big bear in uh, jungle book? The bare necessities. Do, 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 right? he, was, he was just happy. He was, that, that dude was content, right? He was a little lazy too, but uh, he was content, right, with the bare necessities. He was laid back, relaxed. He was content with the bare necessities. So we shall have food and covering. With these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires. Here's our word foolish, right? Talking about wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So in other words, if you are that person, that guy, that gal, who, who has purposed in their heart, I'm going to be rich, I'm going to make a lot of money, I'm going to be a millionaire by this whatever, right? Um, you, you've made it your goal to make a lot of money. From the moment you wake up to the time that you go to bed, you're thinking about making money. Your mind is fixated on money all the time. That's you, okay? It says you're going to fall into temptation. If you crave riches, you, you're opening yourself up to all sorts of temptations. Because when a person is obsessed with getting rich, their values become disoriented. They're, not, they're, they're more willing to compromise their standards to, to benefit their bottom line. They're, they're willing to be involved in questionable financial dealings, um, fraud, lying, being dishonest, stealing, embezzling, cheating, even things like committing adultery and murder, all for financial gain. I mean, we saw that firsthand here in Houston, right? Uh, back, I guess it was in the late 90s, early 2000s, right? When the Enron crash, remember that? Um, I think this this verse here in First Corinthians 6 provides a commentary on the corporate corruption that caused the downfall of, of Enron. What What a desire to get rich will lead to. And so he says, notice you'll be... You'll be tempted, um, you'll, you'll fall into temptation and a snare, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, okay? I mean, you think and act irrationally, you make rash and stupid decisions in your effort to keep up with the Joneses, right, next door, you're, you're, you're making dumb decisions, you're going into debt, you're, you're sacrificing your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your friends, um, you're damaging your reputation, you're endangering your health, right? Foolish and harmful desires. They will plunge you, it says. Just kind of unpacking this a little bit. They'll plunge you into ruin and destruction. That word plunge means to cause to sink, to drag you to the bottom, to drown. You're going to drown, and it says you'll be plunged into ruin and destruction, and I think these two words, ruin and destruction, they're, they're, they're like two sides of a coin. One refers to the physical loss that you'll experience in this life and destruction um, describes the spiritual loss that you'll experience in the, the end, in, in eternity. And so basically ruin is, you know, your life is, here on earth is going to be a disaster. Um, the American dream is going to become the American nightmare. And then if that's not bad enough, you will have to spend eternity in hell because your whole heart, right? Your, your, your heart was, 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 was greedy. Um, Luke 16, the story of the, the uh, rich man and Lazarus. You, you know why Jesus told that story? It says, Luke 16, verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. He says, oh, you want to scoff? Let me tell you a story. <laughs> Let me tell you about the rich man and Lazarus, right? And they both died, and the rich man went to hell, right? Lazarus went to heaven, and the rest is history, right? We know that story. How about James chapter 5? Adam's, in fact, preaching this passage tonight to the students out there uh, as he's going through the, the book of James, but but talk about... You know, we, we met each other in the bathroom before <laughs> the service, and we were talking about what we we're going to preach, and he was talking about how convicting that passage is. But listen to James 5, 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the lord of Sabaoth. you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter you have condemned and put to death the righteous man he does not resist you i mean those are some hard words um, mark eight thirty 36 what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world in what Loses his soul. So anyway, back in 1 Timothy 6, we haven't even got to the love of money thing yet, right? Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And this is we have to be careful here because this phrase is often misconstrued by well-meaning people. They say, oh, money. Money is the root of all evil. That's not true. The love of money is the root of... Listen, money is neutral. It's not good or bad. It depends on how and why we acquire it and how and why we use it. I mean, money is used for a lot of good things, right? We're we're able to worship and and, and meet together and fellowship in this building, right? Why? Because people invested money in the work of the Lord, and we were able to be in this building. I thought that was a good thing. Meeting practical needs, funding ministries, supporting missions. These are all things. Money isn't evil. Loving it is. And he says money is not the root of all evil. It is a root. Right. So the love of money and greed is one of the most common sources of evil. And it says, uh, notice, it says for love money is a, is, a, is a root is a root of all sorts of evil. Not every evil imaginable, but I think it's inconceivable that there's a sin that hasn't been committed as a result of loving money. People have drank, taken drugs, gambled, prostitution, robbery, divorces, wars, murders, right? All for the love of money. And those who are longing for it, grasping for it, greedy, they've actually wandered away from the faith. Apparently, some leaders in the church in Ephesus had been drawn away from God by a desire for sordid gain. And it says they pierced themselves. They, they, that's the word there is being impaled on a stake. They they shish kebab their own souls, pursuing money. And it says that they have many a pang, pierce themselves with many griefs or many a pang, painful consequences connected with greed. Uh, Many sins lead to many sorrows and and miseries, things like a guilty conscience and unhappiness and boredom and regret for lost opportunities, sad memories, broken relationships, basically a, a, a wasted life. So all that to say, it doesn't sound like loving money makes anyone happy. That's not a very happy passage. Those aren't very happy things. Why is that? Because God had made us more, made us for more than money, right? Luke 12, 15 says this, Beware, Jesus said, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So even when you got a lot, your life does not consist of your possessions. In other words, That's not what life's all about. But you would know that by listening to what the world has to say, right? We've all seen the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys, what? Wins, right? That life's all about the possessions you have and the house you live in. And I appreciate what Tommy Nelson said. Tommy Nelson pastors Denton Bible Church uh, up north of Dallas, and he's written a little Bible study guide on on Ecclesiastes, and he said this, very insightful. He said, quote, the very economic engine of America is built on our dissatisfaction with what we already possess. We might have just got a brand new something right a year ago, but then the new model came out and we're discontent, right? We got to have the new one, the latest, greatest model. He says, it's not what we have, it's what we don't have that matters. We keep telling ourselves, if only I had fill in the blank, right? Then I'd be happy. Keeping up with the Joneses is, is a national pastime. It's easy to see a neighbor's new car, hear about a new raise, or see the new custom kitchen go in and wonder why God hasn't seen the fit to bless us. Contentment in this world is elusive. The house is never big enough, the checking account is never full enough, and the car is never new enough. I know you know what that's about, right? Because we all battle with that stuff. So the first myth, okay, the myth about money is that money makes you happy. That's a myth. It's not true. Second myth is money solves all your problems. Money solves all your problems. Verse 11, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? In other words, the more money you get, the more problems you have, the more money, the more friends. But the question is, are they true friends? Who like you for who you are, or are they just hanging around because they want some of your money? They want to be able to enjoy some of the, you know, the scraps that are falling off the table, right? We're going to hang around this guy. He's throwing cash around, buying everybody this and that. I want to get a part of the take. It's, it's notorious, right? When you win the lottery all your long-lost relatives show up to get their fair share, right? Phone starts ringing off the hook and people want to sponge off your wealth and if it's not for the long-lost relatives, the next person who's knocking on your door are the creditors, right? Hey, we want our cut. Taxes, come on, pay up, right? And so rather than solving problems, having more money oftentimes creates a whole new set of problems that you never had to deal with before. So money solves all your problems, true or false? False, right? That's a myth. Number three, third myth, is that money brings peace of mind. Money brings peace of mind. Verse 12, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. I think this is, has something to say here when it says, the sleep of the working man is pleasant. You know, just the whole idea of the whole lottery thing, right? Oftentimes, it's not greed that's motivating people to go buy a lottery ticket. It's laziness. They just want to get rich quick. They want to get rich the easy way. And so we'll squander our welfare checks to buy some right lottery tickets so that we can, what? Never have to work. But he says, the sleep of the working man is pleasant. In other words, if if you're an honest, hard worker, you're going to have no problem falling asleep at night, right? Because you'll be exhausted. You'll have a a sense of accomplishment, right? That you're a hard worker. So you're you're, you're going to have a peaceful night's rest. Whether you... Ate a steak, a T-bone steak for dinner, or a bologna sandwich. Doesn't matter. You're going to zonk out, and it's not going to matter to you because you know you put an honest day's, right? You've earned an honest day's wage. You can rest in peace. You have a clear conscience. But he says, the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. That could be a reference to the fact that if you're rich, sometimes you end up gorging yourselves, right? Because you can afford more food, right? And so you eat more and uh, and you know what that happens, right? When you eat too much before you go to eat, right? Before you go to sleep, excuse me, or you eat the wrong kinds of things, right? And you're going to have a hard time sleeping. You're going to be tossing and turning all night. You're going to be looking for the Pepnobismo or the, the antacids, right? Or whatever you need to kind of get your, calm, calm your stomach. I think maybe more of what he's talking about here is that The increased wealth brings increased anxiety. And you spend your nights tossing and turning, worrying about the stock market and and, and being broken into or being embezzled or having somebody slap a lawsuit or going bankrupt, right? And so you have to end up taking sleeping pills and antacids and other things just to get you to sleep. It's said that Rockefeller... Uh, I already mentioned him that he was very sick. In fact, he lived on crackers and milk and had a hard time sleeping because of anxiety, thinking about all of his billions of dollars. I said this a few weeks ago. I read it somewhere. I thought it was really profound. Someone said this, it's good to have the things that money can buy as long as you don't lose the things that money can't buy. Right? Nothing wrong with having the things that money can buy. It's not wrong to live in a nice house, drive a nice car, wear nice clothes, eat good food, right? Nothing wrong with that as long as you're not sacrificing the things that money can't buy. Like your peace of mind, right? Like your health, like your marriage, like your opportunity to raise your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, right? And so money brings peace of mind, true or false? False, right? That's a myth, And then the last myth here, number four, is that money provides lasting security. Money provides lasting security. Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. So he's saying, listen, greedily amassing Riches often has disastrous consequences, and he he references a guy here who had vast reserves of wealth, and he just hoarded it to himself, and instead of using it for constructive purposes, uh, and he kept it stashed away, and his life ended miserably through some unfortunate turn of events, right? He lost everything. A bad investment, The stock market crashed. The bottom fell out of his investment. He lost everything. And what he had hoped to leave his son or to his son in in inheritance was gone. It was wiped out. And so he dies penniless. This reminds me of the, the parable of the rich fool that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. You're familiar with it. He told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and then there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, here you go, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, what? Eat, drink and be merry. In other words, I don't have a care in the world. I'm completely secure. Right? So he was self-secure, thinking that um, you know, hey, I've got all this stuff, I got plenty of stuff to last me a lifetime, nothing to worry, I'm just gonna kick back and have a good time. Then God says, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so Solomon is saying, hey, don't be that rich fool, right, who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Verse, six, uh, verse 15, as he had come naked from his mother's womb so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, is, this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Hey, listen, I was not at your birth. You were not at my birth. But I guarantee you, when you were born, you were naked, Okay? And you didn't come in with some car keys and some credit cards and a purse over your shoulder, right? A wallet, whatever. You didn't come out with nothing. You came out naked. We all came out naked. And so this is, of course, a classic um, imagery that we see throughout the Scriptures. Um, that you, you, come in, you leave the world the same way you come into the world. With what? Nothing. Uh, Job chapter 1. Verse 21, remember when God took everything away, or I should say God allowed Satan to take everything away from Job. Job 1, 21, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Psalm 49, Psalm 49, verse 17, just to see the theme throughout the scriptures here. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. And then, of course, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. We were just there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. It's almost a direct quote from the book of Ecclesiastes. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. We always joke about the fact that you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. Right? I heard a story about uh, a very wealthy man's funeral. And everyone was there to, 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 to say their peace and, and to say goodbye to this, this wealthy man. And somebody whispered to the other, How much did he leave behind? And the person whispered back, All of it. Wondering how much this guy really, how much did this guy, he left it all behind. Ecclesiastes, back in chapter 5, verse 17, moving on. Notice he says, throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Okay, talking about a guy who loves money, who's greedy, and his whole life is about getting more stuff. What's his life like? He eats in darkness with vexation, great anxiety, turmoil, sickness, anger, frustration, bitterness. And so here's a guy who has sadly and foolishly miscalculated life. He's measured success by the wrong standards. And when the long, greedy struggle for money comes to an end, he has nothing to show for it. He dies a poor, frustrated, bitter, angry old man. Chuck Swindoll said it this way, from the outside, the life of the rich man... May seem delightful, satisfying, and carefree. Doesn't it often look like that? But on the inside, it is frequently marked by frustration, discontentment, anxiety, and loneliness. That's what verse 17 describes. Don't be that guy. Well, you ready for a breath of fresh air? Verses 18 and 19 show us a better way to live. Okay, here's the good news. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him for this is his reward. Whoa, time out. That sounds very similar to the, the, the fool, the rich fool that said, hey, I got plenty of stuff in my barns and I'm gonna eat, drink and be merry. Whoa, what's the difference between what that guy was saying and what Solomon's saying? the rich fool was saying it with complete disregard for God. He never acknowledged God as the one who gave him all that blessing, gave him that bumper crop, gave him the ability to build bigger barns. Not once did he acknowledge God. It was all about him. He was living under the sun. It was all horizontal. It was he and his barns, right? There was no vertical relationship or vertical perspective, that rich fool. But here's Solomon saying, guess what? It's okay to say let's eat, drink, and be merry because we receive all of God's blessings or all the blessings in our lives as a gift from God. And so we acknowledge God. So it's okay to eat, drink, and be merry, to have a good time, enjoy a good meal, right? As long as you're acknowledging God and all that verse 19. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift from God. So what's the better way to live? Okay? 1 Timothy 6:17 Timothy Paul had a lot of stuff to say about money to Timothy. Apparently there were some wealthy people in the church in Ephesus. Listen to what he said. 1 Timothy 6, 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world to sell all that they have and give it to the poor. Is that what it says? Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, not to say, look at me, look at my $1,000 suit, look at my fancy car, look at my house and my stuff, right? Don't be conceited or don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, Right? There's no lasting security in money. He said, they're uncertain. They're here today, gone tomorrow, right? He says, so don't tell them not to fix. Listen, Timothy, you got rich people in your church. Tell them, no, don't be prideful. Don't be conceited about it. And make sure they know to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, excuse me, to fix their hope not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Make sure they're hoping in God, not their riches. See, that's the point. You know, in Proverbs 30, uh, Solomon said, Lord, don't give me um, too much, right? Because then I may not need you, I may not acknowledge you, and don't give me too little because then I might s- steal and dishonor you, right? So either way, in other words, keep me right in the middle. <laughs> Just give me what I need, right? Don't give me too little, don't give me too much. And, and the point is, when you have too much, you don't need God. When you don't have a financial need, right, there's no sense of need for God. And so he says, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to what? Remember? To enjoy. Guess what? God gave you what he gave you so you would enjoy it. You're not supposed to feel guilty about it. Oh, man, I feel bad that I made all this money. Oh, praise God, that was his gift to you, right? If you are properly motivated, purely motivated, and you're using it. Uh, I, I, I was uh, talking to another, uh, I talked to a guy just last week. And, and he said, he said I, I don't know what's going on, but I, I'm making money hand over fist. I don't know what I'm doing. But the Lord, and I said, I'll tell you what's happening. I said, the Lord trusts you. Because I know this guy's heart, and he's got a soft heart to the Lord. He's very generous. And I just said, I think the Lord just trusts you, that He can bless you with resources because He knows you're not going to squander it on yourself, but you're going to you're going to invest it in the kingdom. You're going you're going you're going you're going you're going to turn around and give it back to God. Um, the whole point is what Timothy, what Paul was saying to Timothy about God gives us all things to enjoy. That's exactly what. Solomon is saying here, this is one of those enjoyment passages, right, which, which we've already seen a couple of them in chapter 2, chapter 3, now here in chapter 5. These are like mile markers as we travel through the book of Ecclesiastes. Just to remind us, Solomon says, I want to make sure you guys never get the impression that I'm being cynical, I'm being sarcastic, that I have this, this morbid, depressed view of the world. No, that not at all. I'm showing you life without God. And so every once in a while, he, he, he brings the light out. He brings us down into the darkness and go, whoa, get us out of here. All of a sudden, he turns the light switch on again. Oh, by the way, that's life under the sun. Let me remind you, that's not what life has to be. Let me tell you what life was intended to be. And so he, he talks about enjoying and he's talking about happiness and contentment in life isn't found in money, but it's found in Who? God, you know we have that expression. If you ever get you ever get uh, you know stuck up, what I mean by that is somebody tries to rob you. What do they say? Your money or your life? That's what Solomon is saying here. Your money or your life? You pick. You can have your money, or you can have life. What do you, what do you want? You want money or you want real life? And so in contrast to that miserable existence of working to get rich and, 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 and uh, you know, on that treadmill every day trying to make more money, Solomon exhorted us just to be grateful to God for the job that we have, work hard at it, enjoy the fruit of our labor as God enables. And this is really critical. Notice this. He says, furthermore, as for every man, verse 19, to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. So the results of a man's labor and his ability to enjoy those are a gift from God. You can have all the things that you ever wanted in life and not enjoy them. Why? Because having things... And enjoying things are two different things, but they're both a gift from God. And it's a wonderful thing when God chooses to bless us not only with his wealth, or with wealth, but also with the ability to enjoy that wealth. And Solomon's going to expand on this in the next chapter. We'll see it next week. He's going to point out how the unhappiness, he's going to point out the, the unhappiness of people who possess wealth but are not able to enjoy it. Talk about a miserable existence. you got everything you ever wanted in life, but you're still unhappy. And you can't even enjoy the things that you have. So he's saying here in in chapter five, we need to accept our lot in life, be content with what God provides for us, whether it's merely adequate or it's abundant. Like the apostle Paul in Philippians four, he learned the secret of being content in all circumstances, whether with a lot or with a little, right? Hebrews 13.5, a very important verse in light of what we're talking about. Hebrews 13.5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, knowing that the Lord will provide for you. Look at verse 20 and we'll close. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. He will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. In other words, when you take one day at a time and you rejoice in God's daily blessings, you're going to live a life without regrets. You're you're going to be so overjoyed with what God is doing in the here and now, right now in the present, you won't have time or won't need to brood over the past or even fret about the future. And I think Solomon may have been implying here that those who, who gratefully accept God's gifts today are not going to worry about how long they're going to live. It's like my wife, I said, hey, well, how old are you or whatever, their birthday, and she's like, hey, it's just another year closer to heaven, right? She's not ticking this thing by going, oh, no, uh, I'm getting older and I'm getting grayer and all this stuff, right? You don't think about that stuff. People who are, are joyful, they're, they're rejoicing, they're thankful to God, for what he's given them, they're not going to dwell too much on the passing years. And they're going to take each day as it comes, and they're going to have a life is good perspective, right? Life's good. Didn't say it was perfect, but it's good. And, and, and this is important, okay? Notice the last phrase, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. You say, man, I wish I could know what that felt like. I don't, I don't feel like that's my life. Gladness of heart. I'm, I'm kind of like sad and depressed and mopey and kind of Eeyore like, you know? Um, I, I wish I had more happiness. I wish I had more gladness. I wish I had more joy. Well, listen to Psalm chapter Psalm 4. Psalm 4, verse 6. Many are saying, Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord, you have put gladness in my heart, more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Listen, if you lack gladness, happiness, joy in your heart, There's only one place to get it, and that's God. And it's a gift that he graciously grants to us when we ask him. And so I think we should, if you lack the gladness in your heart, and say, Lord, uh, my life is not glad. I'm not glad about my life. Well, Lord, would would you put gladness, joy, contentment, peace, rest in my heart? So people who work and toil all their lives sweating to receive the enjoyment that God freely offers as a gift. I mean, I didn't think this through. What would be a good analogy of that? It's like, you know, you're 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 striving and you're working, and I guess this this was the example. I saw this the other day on on, on the news on, on, the, on the internet, MSN.com. and there was a, a video, I guess, of, of, of some, um, uh, I guess he was some agent, some police officer, and they show him climbing over this fence to chase some bad guy, right? He's climbing over this fence and laboring to get over this fence. He finally gets over this fence, and the guy behind him unlatches the door and walks through it. It's pretty funny. So it was like all that work for nothing, Right? You could have just opened the latch. Well, the point is, listen, why are you working and toiling so hard for something that God offers you freely as a gift? All you have to do is ask for it. And seek it in the manner that he's chosen to give it by knowing him and his son, Jesus Christ. John 17, 3, this is life eternal, that you might know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Money cannot buy satisfaction, because satisfaction is a gift from God. Happiness comes by knowing the living God and receiving everything as a gracious gift from Him. Listen to what Leland, or excuse me, um, Philip Riken says. He says, The appetite for what money can buy is never satisfied. The only way to curb that appetite is to be content with what God provides. Rather than always craving more, we're invited to be happy with less because we're satisfied with God. We need to always remember that our hearts have been created in such a way by God that they're only big enough for one all-consuming passion. And there's really two choices according to Jesus. You cannot love God and money. This the bottom line, he said, Jesus said, you can't love, serve God and money. Every one of us has to make a choice about who we're going to love and live for. Are we gonna love and live for money or are we gonna love and live for God? What did Jesus say? Seek first Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you as well. One more quote from Philip Reichen. He says, the world that God created is full of many rich gifts, but the power to enjoy them does not lie in the gifts themselves. This is why it is always useful to worship, or excuse me, useless. This is why it's always useless to worship the gifts instead of the giver. The ability to enjoy wealth or family or friendship or food or work or sex or any other good gift comes only from God. And this is the line right here. Satisfaction is sold separately. Right? You, you buy something and say, what? Battery sold separately, right? You get the product and you're like, why doesn't it work? Right? What's what's wrong? I I, it's not what it's not working. Well, guess what? You you got to buy something else. And so we got life, you know, by the throat, going. Why aren't you working? And God says, because satisfaction is sold separately. It's it's me, right? I'm the batteries that aren't included, if you will, right? That's what you're missing. And oh, by the way, you open it up. There's a little place to put those batteries, right? And there's a place in your heart for me. And so the God-centered verses here at the end of chapter 5 call us back to a joy that can only be found in God. The person who finds great enjoyment in life is the one who knows God and has a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, we thank You for this great text and how practical it is, Lord, for all of us because we all uh, have that affluenza. Lord, we all want to be affluent, and we we live in an affluent country, and the Lord, we're all tempted by the love of money, and so thank you for this reminder. Lord, thank you for exposing these myths for us so that we wouldn't buy into them, we wouldn't believe them, and get robbed of what really matters most, and that's a relationship with you through your son, Jesus. I pray if anyone doesn't know you, that they will come to know you through this message tonight, and Lord, the rest of us, Lord, that we would put put this message into practice and how we view our lives, and that we would truly um, seek you to put gladness in our hearts so that we could live with the joy and the happiness that you intend for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.